There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. Welcome to the One Haas Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee. And today we're joined by my co-host, Christine Tao, co-founder and CEO of Sounding Board. Our guest is Roy Ng, co-founder and CEO of Bond, an enterprise-grade financial technology platform that's streamlining the integration between brands and banks. And Roy is a 2000 graduate. Go Bears. Go Bears. Roy, let's start with your origin story. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what you did before and after Haas? Yeah, I was born in Hong Kong. I spent the first decade of my life in Hong Kong, went to elementary school there. My parents decided to come to the U.S. So my mom and I first came to the States when my dad had to take care of some business and wrap up stuff. And so it was kind of my mom and I discovering kind of a new country. We have a few relatives here, starting to build a life here. I still remember going to middle school and I spoke with a little bit of an English accent, just given back then it was still, Hong Kong is still kind of a British colony and 10-year-olds are, are interesting, right? They have a lot of opinions. This was, I think, fifth grade, a lot of opinions about people who are different from them. Yeah, I tried really hard to fit in and football with soccer and all sorts of nomenclature that you had to kind of get adjusted to. I think when you're young, you're also, you're able to kind of assimilate fairly quickly. So no problem with that. And I went on to Berkeley, probably one of the best decisions I've made, or probably one of the most impactful decision at that age that you had to make. And so I was double major, Haas and political science. One of the things that I was very passionate about and I continue to be passionate about is really leveling the playing field for be it immigrants or be it people who may not be in the same situation you are. I feel personally very blessed given where I am and the education that afforded me professional career that I have. And so throughout my journey, I've always thought about how best to give back. And that's why I've been involved with Haas. I'm involved with a number of nonprofits, including one called Junior Achievement. Basically, we work with kids in school to teach them financial literacy, entrepreneurship, exposing them to things that they may not get exposed to in just kind of day-to-day coursework. And so I founded Bond partially because I also want to level the playing field. Financial services historically has been for the people who are well-banked, like all three of us, we probably get mailing for new credit cards every single day. But for a big portion of Americans and for a big portion of the world, they're not adequately addressed by the financial system itself. And so building Bond was, for me, a way to provide the building blocks for innovators to be able to better address segments of the community that may not have been addressed well by the current financial system. I think Roy and I share one common thing, which is, so my company Sounding Board is really about democratizing access to leadership development and coaching. And that really stemmed out of my own experience of working with the coach once I became an executive. And so it's been really nice to reconnect with Roy actually now that we're both founders and also because we have these very mission-driven businesses that stemmed out of our own 
prior experiences. That's amazing. I still remember meeting up with you, Christine, back at that coffee shop <laughs> when Vaughn was an idea, sounding board was an idea, and we were really just ideating, frankly. That's right. And how far have we come, right? I mean, we've both now raised our Series A and we're looking at potentially even using sounding board for our team. And so for me as a first-time founder, I think there's really a lot of satisfaction in building something from nothing. We've all been executives before and, you know, helping something that's already scaled out, refine and grow is one thing, but really birthing something, frankly, from zero to something, it's hard, but extraordinarily rewarding. Agreed. I think I first tried to pitch Roy when he was still COO at Twilio to use Sounding Board. (laughs) And then from there, we evolved. But I agree. I think, you know, I've been an executive at whether it was Google or YouTube and then some other venture-backed startups here in the Bay Area and also a first-time founder. Certainly a lot of learnings, but it's definitely been like what I consider, you know, a learning experience of a lifetime. So really grateful for the opportunity that we get to do this. And certainly there's ups and downs, but I think for us, that's why that mission is important because you have to have a bigger vision around what it is you're trying to accomplish. You know, you guys are a couple of steps ahead of me in terms of fundraising. I'm really curious, since it's AAPI month, what challenges you guys encountered as Asian American founders, if any? I would say just in general, I've been pretty fortunate with fundraising. In fact, we have the same investor, Kanan, both Christine and I. We incubated actually our idea at Kanan. One of the investors there is a founding investor. He was the one who kind of really shaped the idea in the first place on how to kind of potentially approach this market. For me, it was an opportunity to build something from scratch throughout my career. After I spent a decade at Goldman as an investment banker, and you know, you work with some great companies, and you get to help them, advise them, and grow them. But for me, being in the driver's seat was interesting. That's why I went to an operating role, and building something from scratch has always been something on my roadmap. But I wanted to make sure that that was an opportunity number one that matches my passion and my experiences, but two also is the market opportunity is the right one. And it was kind of right place, right time with the right investor. And so we raised our seed round and subsequently our A round without too much effort per se, because I think that the space has been, especially fintech generally, but obviously our area in banking as a service is increasingly getting a lot of attention. On the AAPI kind of angle, right? I would say, as I mentioned, immigrant, from Hong Kong, I would say there's a tendency to be a little bit more modest in the Asian cultures. In many Asian cultures, I wouldn't say every, but in most Asian cultures, modesty is a virtue. And I do think when you're an entrepreneur, you need to be able to articulate and pitch for something much larger, something that you want to happen, but may take some steps and may take some imagination to kind of get there. And so I think that's something where you got to have to push yourself. And obviously through like my other experiences, you kind of learn, you have to do that. But I do think that is probably one area where culturally just kind of have to adapt to it. I didn't think it was an issue per se, but that'd be my kind of first thought there. I think so much of what you said resonates with me. One, I'm Chinese American, so I'm from Taiwan. I was born there, but 
mostly grew up here. I moved here when I was two. So culturally feel very Americanized and identify with US culture, but I still look a certain way. And then of course I am a woman. My co-founder is also a woman. So there's a lot of stats out there that show that venture capital to sole female founded companies, probably less than 3%. And last year during COVID dropped to even less than 2% potentially. Hmm. So odds and data already show that it's very challenging for folks like me to be able to go out and successfully raise funding. Then I think on top of that, a lot of what Roy said, where so much of it is really when you engage with investors, it is painting that future of tomorrow. And when you're an operator, you are looking at today and all of these things that are holes you're plugging and fires you're letting burn. And so being able to go from that to then very far-reaching, long-term view, complete conviction around where that's going and knowing you have to build towards that, it is a skill. And I definitely had to learn that. I found that my earlier attempts at fundraising were challenging because I was so used to, as an operator, pointing to what I had accomplished and using that to be, this is why you should invest. When in reality, that might be 20% of it. You need enough to be credible. And then it becomes much more market opportunity, future vision, conviction, all of these things that just didn't come naturally to me, to be honest. I'm really curious. This is something that was brought to my attention the other day when friends and advisors were saying, you know, I should look towards Asian funds or Asian investors. But for some reason in my mind, I never even thought to approach Asian investors. Did you guys have any kind of aversion towards that or did it just not matter? Yeah, I was more optimizing for credibility for the company, especially early stages, like be it institutional investors or angel investors is all around credibility and what they can bring as you build, right? Because you're still in building phase in the earliest days. You're not scaling anything. You're still looking for product market fit. And so getting the right folks on your cap table was around adding credibility and adding the right set of advisors to kind of help steer you toward kind of a business model and a product that resonates. And so for me, Asian or not was not a huge focus. That said, we did, I did invite Eric Yuan from Zoom to be an early angel individual investor into Bond. And he was very supportive of it. I have subsequently, after founding Bond, been associated with a firm called Hyphen Capital, founded by Dave Liu. And it was an interesting thing when Dave introduced it, because the reason for that is, I think there are some similarities in Asian founders. Part of it is not because they're founders, but because of the experiences they've had, right? Like I was at Goldman for about a decade, spending some time in Asia and in the U.S. What you find typically, I'm not saying all the time, is that the percentage of Asian and minorities in more of this middle management group is fairly large. But when you look at kind of the senior most levels at organizations, typically they are not from Asian or minority backgrounds. And so that common experience does bond a lot of, I think, Asian founders because they were either at that level before and it helps inform kind of how they build companies too, right? And so when I was chatting with Dave about it, it just kind of resonated. And it also opened my eyes to the types of companies that have been founded by Asian founders. Until you actually focus on it, you realize, wow, 
there are a lot of role models out there that you could kind of look after. Not that like is your exclusive role model cohort, but there are a lot of people who kind of look like you with a similar background, who are immigrants coming into a new country, who are successful entrepreneurs. And so I think for me is also validation and for me also paying it forward to kind of fund that next generation of Asian entrepreneurs. And so that's the reason why I got involved. But when I started Bond, I did not focus on that element directly, to be honest. I think part of it is my first angels were just people who had worked with me. They knew what I could accomplish. They had a belief in me and they were able to come in. But I think the other side of that is a lot of it is around pattern recognition. And that might be why that was the advice you were given, because a lot of making that decision whether or not to invest from an investor is around pattern recognition. And so the more that there are things that help them feel comfortable, feel like there's a shared experience or understanding are all things that are to your favor. What I tended to find was more useful, I think, like Roy said, was it was ultimately really important to find people that understood my market and my business and had an alignment around that and a deep belief in where the opportunity was. And that was much more impactful because then you also have investors on board that actually understand what you do. It sounds basic, but there's a lot of times that doesn't happen. And then the second is that it's more like alignment around long-term goal and what you're trying to accomplish. And I think that gets more and more important in your later stages. I've experienced this not as a founder, but as an operating executive, where if your investors have a different picture of what the company should be doing or where it should go, there's so much friction that that creates at the executive level, at the board level, that really is disruptive to the business. I would say one other thing just on the API theme is there's always in the back of your mind that, at least for me, as an immigrant moving here when I was 10, looking to fit into the American culture that as the leader and founder yourself, you may or may not be building the right experience for your own team because maybe you're not American enough or whatever, right? And that's always in the back of my mind. seems a little silly given I've been here for so long, but there's always kind of that like, culture piece that you want to make sure that you're super attuned to. And being able to see folks like Eric Yuan at Zoom, not only build a successful company, but earn recognition as one of the best CEOs in the industry. He's an immigrant himself, but as he's building the company, he's been able to build a phenomenal culture, not just like a very successful company. And so people like that, I really look up to. Because obviously the context that you have, if you were building a company in a different country, would be very different. And so culture is very specific to the country you're in and the cultures that you're, you're dealing with. And so for me, it was very validating to see founders who also have a similar immigrant experience being able to build not just successful, but culturally superb companies. Everything we're talking about is very interesting because you're forcing me to think about, and I'm speaking for myself, my privilege having been very fortunate to immigrate here with parents who were college educated and they were able to provide really great opportunities to pave the way for my success. But it makes me wonder what the struggles are for other Asian Americans who may not have assimilated as well. And it's something I don't think about until things are brought to light with recent events. These are things that I just, in the beginning, I couldn't even relate to personally. Even though I moved here when I was seven, 
And I grew up in Michigan, in white suburbia, and always tell people the first time I encountered discrimination was actually moving to LA and seeing just how diverse it is here in LA. And then I started seeing also just the different socioeconomic classes of Asians as well that I didn't really see in Michigan. And it was just something that was so eye-opening. But yeah, I'm just curious if you guys have any thoughts around the entire Asian experience in America. 100%. I think there's always a struggle, at least for me, between assimilation versus accentuating and showcasing kind of your uniqueness, right? There's always this balance. If you always hang around with a certain types of people, is that a good thing for you, both personally and professionally, versus assimilating and being part of quote unquote mainstream? Is that going to get you farther in life? I mean, with the recent events, you could tell, I think for the most part, Asians have wanted to assimilate as best they can. And they privately kind of cultivate or continue cultural things, right? But we don't make a big deal out of what Asians do, so to speak. We don't force this upon people who are not Asians. And so in some ways, it's an interesting question, right? Like as people and as well as kind of professionals, how much of this about your culture should you be not just be proud of, but accentuating the differences with other people? And if you accentuate it too much, is that going to hinder your ability to be successful in the economy? It's always a little bit of a dichotomy for me. It's like, well, how much should I kind of showcase my quote-unquote Asian-ness to my own team or to my investors or to your professional network? When I was in San Francisco, do I need to tell them about like I'm buying mooncakes and tonight is whatever mid-autumn festival? Is that necessary information? So anyway, I would love kind of both of your thoughts, actually. Yeah, I feel certainly like the last couple of years that's shifted. And especially just because of what's happening, whether it's Black Lives Matter, Me Too, there's so many movements that are happening now that I do feel like generally people are more open about sharing their lives and especially in work outside of work and exposing more of that their whole person, I guess, to colleagues and environments maybe where they had kept that sort of separate. Because we do coaching and a lot of that is around creating more authentic leaders, I would think we're maybe unique in the sense that we really try and live and breathe that just like in our company. But it has actually been something that's been interesting to navigate as like a CEO, because you're right. You feel like, well, you have to model that behavior. How do you ensure that you're creating a space for other people to feel comfortable and also making sure you're being careful not to offend and these types of things. So there's so many issues, things that you're trying to sort of manage and dance around. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have an answer around it, but I think it's just been very interesting to observe how that has actually shifted over the last few years. And then also your own level of participation in that. One thing Roy said that really spoke to me was, it was interesting. When all of these things started happening with Black Lives Matter, I remember okay, we're going to make a statement as a company. You know, there's a public statement that goes out about it, this and that. When all of the recent issues happened with AAPI, I actually was a little bit quiet at first because suddenly I was the affected minority. And so then suddenly you're trying to struggle with like, okay, well, how do people perceive this if I go like way far out 
because now it's about me. So there was this like very interesting dance. I suddenly felt that intention that I hadn't felt when it was happening to somebody else. 100%. Our company put out a statement very quickly after Black Lives Movement, and everybody was very passionate about it. But when it came to yourself, there was a little bit like shyness, frankly. Should Mm -hmm. I be standing up for this? Is this really real? Because my experience is not, I don't think I've been discriminating against in the way that a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. And so you do kind of think twice. I, I was a little bit slower to kind of getting out our message. It's an interesting thing. Maybe it's also a cultural thing that's put in there as well, where you don't want to overly advocate for yourself in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Now that you brought it up, it was definitely the case for me. Yeah, same here. I mean, my wife was a lot more impacted and vigilant with the news because her parents live with us. And, and obviously I was thinking, well, okay, this is happening. But I was definitely very hesitant too. And part of it was just, well, my logical brain's thinking, what if it's just the same thing's been happening, nothing has changed, but we have more awareness around it, more of it's being reported. What if it's that? I'm not saying it is. Just that was the first question that came to mind was similar to Roy, I can't remember ever being discriminated against. But again, I also recognize I lived in super privileged place in Michigan, moved to LA, now I live in Orange County, very privileged neighborhoods and livelihoods where honestly, People here and people where I grew up were, in my opinion, very well educated. So they see in the world, they have a much more open mind. But I also recognize, you know, my experience is not everybody's reality. And so really coming to terms of how to support other Asian Americans and especially Asian females, that was the other thing. It took me a second to really think about things from her perspective. Sure, as an Asian male, I didn't experience much growing up. But with her, She was born and raised in Chicago, and she's seen a lot of things in her days. Even when we were dating, I remember she would tell me, like, feels like this guy's following her or some guy followed her into a store. Just weird things like that. And she went to med school in Indiana, so she was definitely in some different places than than I've lived. And I can't deny that, but I've also never experienced it. So I have to realize that I'm also a little bit blind to these things. And so... Yeah, she's definitely helped me realize that on how we can support each other, not just the Asian community, but everybody and everything that's going on. And also, I think translating that feeling as a founder, too. I think Christine brought up the fact that when you're a founder and you're CEO at the top, you want to not look like you are advocating for your own type of people or your demographic more than others. And so you in particularly dance much more delicately, I think, around these issues when it's kind of your own, because Mm -hmm. not every employee in your company is Asian. And well, what if there's another movement on a kind of different cause? Are you as passionate about that cause as your own cause? Because we're the leader. We're supposed to lead others who may not be like you. And so that's always kind of, for me, an important balance. There's been kind of topics swirling around around the company's role in terms of kind of social issues. I absolutely think companies should be involved in social issues. People spend a disproportionate amount of time at work. And I think companies can be a very positive influence in terms of shaping society and shaping culture. But I think it also, back to my origin story around, I wanted to go into law school and do policy, right? To me, there's also this like fine line of representing the people 
that are part of your organization, not just your own, but representing everybody in the organization, right? And what you should be advocating for. So that's always kind of always in the back of my head, especially as founder CEO of a company. So recently, Jason Friedman, who's the CEO and founder at Basecamp, there is a huge blow up in news around statements he made that effectively as a company, they were not going to be commenting on any social issues. And that the bottom line message was work is for work. And it was interesting because I think it's challenging for us to navigate as founders and you're constantly worrying about what the right balance is. But the other side of that is that it's an opportunity because people want connection. People want to understand. And more than ever, even customers, your employees, those things matter in terms of where they spend their time, where they want to work, who they buy from, all of that. And so while I, on one side, can understand why he might go that way, certainly it's not a choice I would make, but I can understand why he maybe took that perspective. I also just think that it's an opportunity really for us as founders, as leaders within your company to create connection through these challenging topics, right? It's kind of through Mm -hmm. friction, through conversation that you are able to create more understanding versus abdication or just saying, no, we're going to silo things in a certain way. Then you've basically sort of removed the potential bridge around certain things. It's pretty hard to separate what happens in society to what happens at work, to be very honest. You, you cannot truly be an apolitical company per se. You live in a political environment. All your employees are political creatures. You can't be purely apolitical. I don't think that's possible. Well, I do think if you didn't have to deal with the politics, you could focus all your energy on other things. That's probably one of the reasons why, you know, Christine, you, you mentioned you could see a reason why yeah. you want to do that. But the reality is fairly hard to separate those two. That's my two cents. <laughs> I just want to thank you guys for entertaining my thoughts around this topic because it is an area that I don't even know how to talk about because Again, I'm, I just live in a bubble as an immigrant. Yeah. I, As you grow I your company, Sean, though, you're going to have employees, you're going to have people. One of yeah. the things you have to think about is how do you represent them mm-hmm. as their leader? That's the part that's beyond you now. Yeah. It's everybody who's part of your mission. Even at this stage, at this early stage, my founder and I think heavily about finding ways to build a company with a really solid foundation around diversity around inclusion. I mean, that's why we're starting this podcasting company that's building Clever, the podcasting platform, because we really believe that podcasts can help empower more voices from people. When there are 40 million YouTubers, there's only 2 million podcasters. And they both start around the same time. That's crazy. The barrier to entry to podcasting is so much lower. <laughs> there should be so many more podcast creators sharing their voices. And so that's our vision. But how do we actually build that into our DNA as well. And that's quite a challenge. How you guys think about diversity hiring as founders, being diverse people yourselves? You know, it's funny. I don't look at diversity as an HR topic per se. I look at diversity as how to build the best possible team that could address what our customers want. The reality is our customers are not one monotype. For Bond, we could enable any brand to be able to offer financial products and they offer to people of all kinds. Every company I've been at, I think diversity is a business imperative, is not less of a philanthropic kind of initiative. 
Mm-hmm. I don't view diversity as philanthropic. Diversity is a way for you to be successful, to incorporate the broadest scope of perspectives as possible in everything that you do. And so from day one, we try to find the best people for the best job with an eye toward diverse views, because some of these diverse views are the winning views. Today, our company is about 30-ish percent women, for example. Not by design. We have no quotas of any sort for any types of people, but it kind of naturally became that way. I do think, however, there are things that as founders we can do, which is as just start from the top. When the top part of your organization looks diverse, it shows that you value diversity from a business perspective and it'll drive more diverse candidates to your company. But my philosophy has always been that diversity is a business imperative. Diversity is not philanthropy. Yeah, I would say that I echo that because one, we are a sort of sole female founded team. And so that was just something that we experienced ourselves. So I did experience discrimination and I've had experiences like that. And so from the start, we were very clear, even when we were just a handful of people in a room to say, this is going to be important to us. Not like Roy said, because it's philanthropic, but because what we found is me and my co-founder are actually very different. So she is a white woman, but she's older. And then there's myself. And if you asked us on any given day, how would you do X? Most likely I'm over here and she's on the other side of the room. But what we found is that although we don't agree on the how, almost 80% of the time we're aligned around the right destination. And then that sort of conversation is actually what allows us to usually get to a better answer for the business. And I've seen that happen again and again. So our leadership team, the other two folks on our leadership team are men. One is Indian, so he's also an immigrant. And then we do have one white man, so he gets our head our sales. But from a style perspective, we're all very different. And it does mean that you may not always immediately align because there's a familiarity and common understanding of how to do things. And so sometimes you do have to work harder to understand and listen but we found that to be absolutely beneficial for the business. There's a real positive business impact to that. So we actively look for that as we hire and bring in folks. It is about getting the best candidate, but I think you do have to be intentional from the start that I'm going to look for the best candidate and I'm going to make an effort to increase the diversity of the candidates that we evaluate. Yeah, and I love, Christine, how you you mentioned, look, it's, it's not just gender, it's not just race, it's not just age. There's many dimensions to kind of building a diverse team. People with certain backgrounds, like at Bond, there are people with more of a financial services background historically versus a more traditional kind of tech background, early stage background. The benefits of that is the diverse perspectives. But to your point, Christine, the more diverse your team, the more stuff you have to work through because people have different opinions. But I do think is going through that hard work that it does come out to be a better solution. And we found that time and time again, internally, when we're talking about things. And so it may seem like a shortcut to get people that align to everything that you say or your vision. But I think sometimes these tougher conversations actually make for a more durable, a more, the best possible path, right? Like if you think about as a startup, every decision you make 
in some ways, at least as a founder, you feel like it's kind of life and death. And so you, you do <laughs> want to kind of make sure that you're making the right decisions, right? And so having a diverse team, at least for me, I found we have to work through some stuff, but eventually where we end up, we all feel very comfortable with. And I feel better about decisions we make as a whole, as a company. I want to thank you both for taking the time to chat with us today on the podcast. This has been a real pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. And it was super fun, Roy. (laughs) Super fun. We should do this more often. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website, haaspodcast.org, as podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears. <laughs>